Welcome back. GQ magazine says that instead of reading the Bible, you should read a book called The Notebook. It's not the one that the movie was made after. This is a different one. They write, and you can read it along with me, I quote, those who have read it, the Bible, know that there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It's repetitive, self-contradictory, uh, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. Bible is certainly not sufficient. It is self-contradictory, foolish, stupid. If you're a Christian and you have any relationship to the Bible, you are a bona fide fool. It's interesting to think about that. Bible is the most popular book of all time, and yet GQ throws shade at it. And yet, at the same time uh, that they can write that, the Bible is still the most, and there's, there's, it's hard to verify this. There's a lot of different sources that they point to, but the Bible is still, uh, according to most reputable sources, the most stolen book in the world. It's the most popular book. It's the most stolen book. Again, it's a polarizing kind of thing, isn't it? Why? I think we all know why. Apparent contrast is due because of the real spiritual, uh, the real spiritual activity happening around the Bible. Tonight, we're going to finish off the sermon that we started last week about how we can be confident. Can we trust the Bible? Yes, we can. We looked at three reasons last week, uh, but we're going to look at three more tonight. But before I do that, let me remind you of the proof for God. Or rather, why don't you remind me? That might be helpful. Uh, one of the ways that you can prove God is by looking to, to what? creation. In fact, if you look directly above me, you'll see Jupiter and you'll see Saturn with your naked eye. Maybe not directly above me, but it's like right over there. Some of you who are really close to the front row, you might not be able to, not be able to see it, but Jupiter and Saturn. I was geeking out as we were singing worship, thinking, look how amazing it is that God designed the world as it is. And look at these planets. It's amazing. Yesterday night, Mars was in opposition to the sun, which means it was the brightest in the night sky that it would be for the next 15 years. Um, I got to see some of that with my naked eye and look at the red planet. Proof for God, creation. Great place to start. Second place, conscience. That inner person that tells you right and wrong. It gives you an affirmation. Yes, you're doing the right thing or no, you're doing the wrong thing. We argued that that was implanted by God to give you a good sense, a good direction. It's not perfect, but a good sense that some things are good and some things are bad. We would say that since we all universally have that experience, no matter where you find yourself on the planet or what day and age it is, all of us have that same internal sense of right and wrong. Murder is always wrong. Rape is always wrong. That comes from God. The last one. The greatest revelation and proof for God is Christ himself, uh, the God-man born in the flesh. We're going to talk tonight about some of the prophecies surrounding that man, but these are a really good place to start. Well, about the reliability of Scripture then, we talked about a few last week. Let me review those with you. The first thing, oh man, get off of me, dude. I feel like Mike Pence right now, <laughs> the fly. <laughs> Except he didn't move. It was, he was cool. Cool cat. All right. Uh, we first start off with the past. We look to history and we realize that the Bible has historicity that is proven by the things that it says. There's archaeology that helps us to see, hey, when the Bible talks about historical events, times, places, and people, why find out that those people, times, and places actually happened? You can dig and you can find sources. You can look at Pontius Pilate's ring. You can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we also see that the word of God has power to affect people. We're going to talk a little bit more tonight about that power, but it has the power to change. One of the greatest apologetics for the Bible is actually the Bible itself. So if you're a skeptic tonight and you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure if I believe the Bible to be the word of God, I always encourage you to read it. Read the Bible and see if you can walk away uh, with the same sense of apprehension or criticism. The Bible itself is its own greatest testimony. Uh, it is self-attesting. But also, tonight we're going to talk about prophecies. When we're trying to prove the Bible. We talk about the past, the historicity. We talk about the power, its ability to affect us. We're also going to look now at the prophecies that make up some of the things that we cling to. In fact, it's a little more complicated than what we might initially believe. So tonight I'm going to take a little more time with you guys and help you understand just a bit more about prophecy than what we normally discuss. I think it'll be helpful, uh, but just know, uh, in, a, in an attempt to teach you 
Sometimes we who teach can oversimplify things to the point where it's not exactly the way it is. Tonight, I hope to encourage you with uh, a careful thinking about what prophecy is and how it has been fulfilled. Lastly, tonight, we're going to talk about the preservation of the Word of God. So the four Ps, the past, the power, the prophecies, and the preservation. These are four elements or four things that we can hang our hat on that can help us have confidence that the Bible is what the Bible says it is. We can realize as we read it that this is something that God demonstrates is from Him by these four areas, the past, the power, the prophecies, and the preservation. And you'll notice, I was really impressed with myself when I noticed this. It is like a pyramid. It goes from smaller to greater. It's really nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's the little things. It's not centered. Yeah, it's not centered. Okay. Let me remind you where we went last week just so we can kind of get our bearings here. This is important because we're still picking up from where we left off. Second Peter chapter one, starting at verse 16. Remember, we, he said this. He said, hey, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we talked about the fact that scripture loves to highlight eyewitness testimony. Peter's one of those guys. He goes on to say, for when we received honor excuse me, uh, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that's the Father, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we heard this with our own ears. We saw with our own eyes. You can trust us on this. We have no reason to lie about this. We heard this, we saw this, and we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. You can ask us, you can, you can talk to us. We'll tell you all about it. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We talked about how important it is because Peter says, I'm not going to rely on my experience. I'm going to rely on the fact that the word of God has been proven to be even more true. It was true in the past, but now that we've seen Jesus in a partial fulfillment of what scripture talks about, we now have greater confidence that the word of God is in fact the word of God. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed and he says to us and to his audience, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, let the word of God guide you. Let the word of God be to you that lamp in front of your feet as you're walking at night. Uh, and this is the day before flashlights and before all the, the, the illumination we have all around us. This is the kind of thing that you would need for safety to make sure that your, foot was, your, your, your footing was sure. You need this lamp. And he says, the word of God is like that. You're in a dark world. The word of God lights your path. And your job is to follow that word because it is reliable. It is light in a dark world. He says, you're to do that until, and this is a poetic way of talking about the return of Christ. He says, do it until the morning star rises in your hearts. The return of Christ is coming. And when that happens, you won't need the word of God the way that you do now. Until then though, you do. Verse 20 is where we pick up tonight. He continues, Knowing this, first of all, or of first importance, most importantly, you know this, that no prophecy of Scripture, and he's talking in this case specifically about the Old Testament, the first, uh, the first books of the Bible, the first half anyway, it's actually more than that, but you get my point. The first half of the Bible, he's talking about this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Interesting way to phrase that. Peter is saying here, that prophecy does not originate, does not stem from humans first. It does come from humans. It, it's the pen of Peter. I was quoting, I was saying, this is Peter's writing. It's Paul's writing. It's, uh, it's Jude's writing. It comes from a man, but it does not start with a man. He, Peter words it in a way that he's trying to get us to the point of saying, hey, look, when someone writes or ascribes uh, prophecy, it doesn't first come from some, it's not Peter saying, oh, I think uh, this is what God's saying. Let me stick my antenna in the air. Okay, I think I get it. Let me write that down. No, Peter's scribing it. Peter's producing it, but it is God who is behind that. It is God who originates prophecy. It doesn't come from his own interpretation. It is God, first and foremost, working through that person to write down exactly what he wants. We call that inspiration. Can you trust the Bible? Yes, because the Bible is inspired. That is the biblical term, not the one that we use when we paint pictures for mom. I was inspired, mom. Here's a picture for you. It's finger painting. Inspired carries a different connotation in this context. Uh, inspired in a technical sense 
is something very different than what you and I understand as inspired. Like, I was inspired to write this poem for you. I was inspired to sing this song for you. It's a very different kind of inspiration. A lot of people today say the Bible is corrupted. We talked about this last week, and I love discussing this. In fact, tonight, ooh, I have a fun exercise for you. Tonight, you're going to go to an atheist website, and you're going to pick several of their contradictions in the Bible, and you're going to discuss them. It's going to be fun. You're going to have a great time. And it's important because they're just verbalizing. They're writing on their website the things that all of your friends believe. The Bible's full of contradictions. It can't be inspired by God. It can't be from God because it's clearly a work of man. It's imperfect. It has errors. It has issues. That website is these guys right here. They are all for uh, highlighting the biblical contradictions. In fact, if you can, I don't know, I'll read it to you, but if you can make it out, it says, it is a central dogma of all fundamental Christians that the Bible is without error. He's right. We call it inerrancy. They teach this conclusion by, quote, reasoning, end quote, that God cannot be the author of, author of false meaning and he cannot lie. Is this true? If written by a perfect being, then it must not contradict itself as a collection of books written by at different times over many centuries would be expected to contradict each other. With this in mind, let us look at the Bible on several subjects. Challenge accepted. And you're going to do that challenge. The Bible has contradictions. The Bible is imperfect. The Bible has been uh, misused and abused. In fact, some people charge us uh, with saying, you pick and choose the things in the Bible that you want to obey. You don't obey everything. And that's clear. Uh, it's a clear indication that you really don't believe what the Bible teaches. Otherwise, you would do all that it says. And that's where memes like this come up. You have people who will say, oh, you pick and choose. You only like the things that you like. You like the verses about love. You like the verses about hating homosexuals. But you don't like the ones about not wearing mixed clothing, like cotton or polyester. You guys still wear polyester. What's up with that? If you were truly believers of the Bible, you would stop wearing polyester. You would stop letting your girls talk. And you would instead do a very different thing. You'd live all the laws out of the Old Testament, all the laws of the New Testament, but you don't, Christian, because you're inconsistent and you don't actually believe your Bible. <laughs> Feels like they would say that too. Like, <sighs> These kind of charges are tough, guys. I won't, I won't sugarcoat that. Because what these show is such a stark ignorance about what the Bible actually is and what it teaches. It's like if, if someone came to you, your younger brother or sister perhaps, or maybe one of the narrow, you know, the seventh graders in the narrow, they came up to you and said, can you help me understand calculus? And they, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> They're barely working on plus and minus. Like, help me understand calculus. Well, what do you know? I know pluses and minuses. Ah, uh, come back at me later. You know, we'll, we'll talk about this at another time. It's not going to work. And that's what's happening here. When people talk about the Bible in this way, it's like taking, it's like making mud pies in the dirt and throwing it at Christians and saying, ah, I don't like what you say. I don't like what you believe. But really what we're working with here is a very sophisticated book. I mean, our religion, if, let's call it that, our religion has been around for 2000 years. And then even before that, you have several thousand, several thousands of years of Judaism. This is a sophisticated religion. It didn't pop up overnight. So when we talk about things like this, you have to understand that central to what we teach as Christians is that the Bible is a, it's a, it's a miraculous book on the one hand because God made it, but it's also a, let's just call it a challenging book. It takes skillful thinking, skillful uh, interpreting, skillful dealing with the Bible, which is why the Bible tells Timothy uh, through the pen of the, apo uh, the apostle Paul, to work diligently, to be a workman who's not ashamed, right? This is the Awanaverse. You want to be a workman? Not ashamed. Why? Because I'm rightly handling the word of truth, which suggests that there's a wrong way to handle it, and that's where most people go wrong. Let me quickly talk you through one of the central doctrines of, uh, of the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of inspiration. One of the best verses for that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and it begins like this. Uh, you'll see it on your screen here. All scripture is, and I, I bolded the words that refer to what we're talking about tonight. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's kind of a weird way to put it. Like, <sighs> The word breathed out is where we get our English word for inspiration. Latin Vulgate uses the word inspiro. Latin Vulgate's an, a, 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 the Latin Vulgate is a Latin translation of the scriptures. The word inspiro was used there, and that's where we get the word inspiration. It's breathing out. Well, it shows that this actually comes from God. 
All of scripture comes from God. It is from him and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's where we get the term from. What it actually means, though, when we work it through, is a few things. Uh, again, God is the primary cause of the Bible, and God used men to craft his message, but not overriding their personality. And in Islam, uh, the idea is that the prophet Muhammad was kind of overtaken by Allah. He was, in that case, God was, uh, Allah rather, Allah overtook Muhammad and made him write in a dictative kind of sense exactly what he wanted him to write. That's their doctrine of inspiration. Ours doesn't work that way. When we talk about men writing the word of God, it is God who is originating the idea, originating the thoughts, words, and phrases, but using the personality, the vocabulary, and the life experiences of that person to inscribe perfectly what God wanted. So if God were to do this today, and he were to do it through the, the pen of Alan Katzif, you would read something that sounds a lot like Alan Katzif. It would not sound like Alan was writing like a robot. Uh, he wasn't suddenly overtaken by some kind of external force. Alan was using his own personality and his own words and his own vocabulary, his own education to inscribe exactly what God wanted. That's the doctrine of inspiration. God does that through men that he chose for his purposes. God is so smart. God is so big. And in Christianity, this makes perfect sense that he could use our willing, thoughtful choices to accomplish his perfect desires. That's not a problem for us because God is powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He can use our free choices to make scripture clear and to be exactly what he desired. If God is inspiring the word of God, the scriptures, that means that word has inherent supreme authority. I'm going to throw another term at you. This is called verbal plenary theory. Um, and just to give you some information, hopefully this isn't too distracting for you, but there's a lot of different approaches to, to inerrancy when it comes to scripture. Some of them are terrible. Um, but some of them are orthodox. This is the one that you should subscribe to. Verbal plenary theory. Let's break down that word. Verbal. Uh, it applies specifically to the words themselves. It is the idea that, that every single word that has been inspired by God is exactly the right word, specifically the word. In a couple places, uh, one, one place, Paul argues on uh, a plural noun versus a singular noun. So we talk about the word of God being inspired down to the very words themselves. Every word matters. When we talk about plenary, we're saying that the whole thing is inspired by God, not just parts. Uh, you can't go in the, the gospels and say, well, all this other stuff that's surrounding the words of Jesus, I'm not sure about. There's a group of people who believe that only the red letters of the Bible are actually the Bible. That the black letters around it, you know, the, the history and the setup, that's all stuff that we can throw out. But only the red letters are from Jesus, and that's the only letters we should pay attention to. And obviously, we deny that. Every part of the Bible is the Bible. When I was in Utah, uh, Jacob, my, my, my new friend, I guess I call him a friend. I don't know if, he's, if I'm his friend, but he's my friend. Um, he said in passing, it was really funny, actually. Uh, he was flipping scriptures around and he said, you know, you Christians, you guys believe that all the Bible is the Bible. It's all from God. He says, but I don't believe that the Bible, you know, I don't think that God wanted the book of Sol Song of Solomon in there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I'll refrain from too much comment, but let's just say I, I, I chuckled a little bit. I didn't fight him on it, but people like Jacob, the Mormons, the lots of people are going to say, only parts of the Bible are truly the word of God. And we would reject that because scripture makes it clear that not just uh, a little bit, but even 2 Corinthians 3.16, all scripture breathed out by God. Okay, verbal plenary theory. This is the way that we approach scripture. We, we ascribe every word, significance, perfection. We talk about the whole thing, not just part of it. Uh, and furthermore, when the Bible talks about itself, it's important to know that in the Old Testament, 415 times, the Bible says about itself, thus says the Lord. God says this. I mean, that's the, that's the new way we say it. God says this. Mom and dad said to take out the trash. If your brother or sister says that to you, you know that's authoritative. I better take out the trash. The Bible says, thus says the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Thus says Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, you should do this. In the New Testament, you have uh, ways that the Bible talks about itself where it says uh, in 2 Peter 3, he talks about how some people are taking Paul's letters and they're twisting them. And he says, they twist Paul's letters um, and, and they're hard to understand, those Paul's letters, but they twist them as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, in the first century, before even the, the close of the, you know, the hundreds, he's already talking about Peter, uh, Paul's letters as scripture. Then, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul quotes the gospel of Luke 
And he says, for the scripture says, and he's quoting the gospel of Luke. Early on, you have in both Old Testament and New Testament, talking about itself as scripture, as authoritative, as thus says the Lord, as this is what the scripture says. All of this gives us a, an idea that the Bible actually intends for us to understand something about itself that most people don't get, that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. If it is in fact from God, that means the Bible cannot err and there is no error inside of it, period. The Bible cannot make a mistake. The Bible cannot say what is false. It cannot assert something that is not in, uh, in congruence with reality. Those words, inerrant and infallible, both matter. You're going to talk about the definition of that tonight, so I won't belabor the point too much, but both of those words matter when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy and infallibility. The Bible says these things about itself. So, why then can we have confidence? We, we had a lot, of, a, a lot of things last week, but I'm going I'm to I'm go off on a different one this week. Uh, and it's specifically, uh, the Bible really does not have contradictions. I thought, you know what? Instead of making you do this all by yourself, let me just kind of get the ball rolling here. Uh, I said last week that the Bible has historicity behind it. It has unity, you know, and we talked about all the authors and all the books and the genres. Well, let me just show you a, a few ways to deal with some of the alleged uh, contradictions that skeptics uh, will, will level at you. And maybe some of these things you've seen and have some questions. And let me just quite try to quickly answer a few of these rapid fire. You ready? Here goes. Here are some of the contradictions that these guys think you don't pay attention to and why you're an idiot for, for believing this. Here we go. First one, Sabbath day. Exodus 20 verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. However, Romans 14, 5 says, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Is this a contradiction? No. Here's why. Two groups of people under two different covenants are given two different sets of instructions. It's not a contradiction. Remember, when Jesus comes in the New Testament, when Jesus inaugurates a new covenant, he has fulfilled the old covenant commands and demands. And that includes Sabbaths. Jesus now is our Sabbath rest. And so again, if I'm talking to someone, this is calculus to a pluses and minuses person, all right? We're trying to simplify this and show there's not contradiction here. We're talking about two different people, Israel and the church, at two different times, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and we're saying there's not a contradiction. This is really just a matter of slowing down and understanding Scripture on its own terms. That's where these guys go, ar uh, go awry. They don't understand Scripture on its own terms. Do you? Here's the next one. The permanence of the earth. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says the earth abides forever. 2 Peter 3.10, however, says the elements, uh, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Well, which is it, Scripture? Is the earth permanent or is the earth destroyed? I think they dropped the ball on this. They could have put, a, they could have put some verses together that would have made a much more powerful impact. But these are easy. Uh, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, what kind of genre is that? Think quickly. What kind of genre is Ecclesiastes? It's a wisdom literature and it's poetic. In fact, this particular verse is shown in your Bibles in the kind of text that kind of sets it apart. Like when you're reading Psalms, that kind of uh, formatting, that's how Ecclesiastes 1.3 is put positioned. And the point of Ecclesiastes 1.3 is not to talk about the actual age of the earth. It is poetically and hyperbolically saying, look, the earth doesn't, uh, the earth lasts forever, but everything else in life is transient. What we live, we die, we work, you know, we rest. I mean, he says, uh, the, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to make the point that in contrast to the earth's ongoing nature, everything else in our life seems to end abruptly and quickly. You know, we live, we die. We eat, we drink, and we stop eating, we die. His whole thing in Ecclesiastes is about death. And in other words, poetry, poetry. Whereas Peter, when he talks about this, this is eschatology. This is end times teaching about the actual ending of uh, earth and life as we know it. Two genres, two objectives. Next. You guys want to do a couple more? Yes. Okay. I have a couple more queued up here. Here we go. Seeing God. I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Genesis 32, 30. John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. Now, which is it, Christian? Have you seen God or haven't you? All right. 
Genesis 32:30, uh, this is Jacob wrestling with God. Remember that? He's wrestling with God in the middle of the night, and he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then he touches his socket. He's like, ah, oh, bye, you, you killed me. God does not have a body. And so we can say that whoever Jacob was wrestling with, it was not God the Father, because God does not have a physical corporeal body. He doesn't have limbs. But who does? Jesus. Now, I grant, the, the, the Genesis, this Genesis text doesn't say that he was wrestling with Jesus. But in, in a certain sense, as, as Abraham is approaching this event, he says, I've seen God. I wrestled with God and I was victorious. Essentially, what you have here is a future prediction, a, a future looking forward to the pre-incarnate Christ. And he, in this case, he's wrestling with him. He's the angel of the Lord in this sense. He could be a Christophany. You might have heard that word, an angelic representation of Christ. Uh, it could be a theophany. Uh, an angelic representation of God. In either sense, this is not the undiluted glory of God. This is not God's full immeasured glory being displayed to Abraham. This is something different. And, and I'm sorry if the, you know, the atheist doesn't quite want to work with that nuance, but that's what's happening here. Whereas in this text with John, John is saying no man has seen God at any time. And that's true. The undiluted glory of God, the full measure of God in all of his glory and his splendor, he, no one has seen that. Remember, when, when Moses asked to see God, God said, no, I can't let you see me, but I'll let you see my, my hindquarters. They passed by. Moses couldn't see God. No one has seen God. And when we say God, we mean God the Father. Because there have been people that have seen Jesus the Son, which in my case, I'm arguing in Genesis 32, that's who Abraham wrestled, the pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate Jesus the Son. So you have to make distinctions here. No one has seen God the Father but we have seen Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what John says in John 1.18. He says, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the Son, has made him known. Exactly what John says. So my, my, my theory about how to put this together makes sense with the scriptures. Let's do one more. Human sacrifices. Leviticus 18.21. Uh, you shall not let any of your seed pass through the fire to Molech. Don't sacrifice your, your babies to the fire god Molech. Neither shall you profane the name of your God. And then in Judges 11, they quote uh, the judge Jephthah, who makes the foolish vow and says, God, if you let me win this victory, I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my gate first. Ooh, plot twist. What comes out of the gate first? His daughter. daughter. Ooh, moral dilemma. Do I honor what God has done for me by sacrificing my daughter, or do I not sacrifice her because that would be a clear violation of what God's word says. From what we gather, Jephthah clearly sacrifices his daughter. Stupid, right? Now, here's something to note. I, I, let me, I don't want to read all of this, but let me just read that last paragraph. The terms were acceptable to God. Remember, he is supposed to be omniscient and know the future. So he gave victory to Jephthah and the first whatever that greeted him upon his glorious return was his daughter as God surely knew would happen. If God is God, true to his vow, his generic, his general, the general made a human sacrifice of his only child to God. In other words, he's arguing that because God knew the future that he would, if to answer Jephthah's uh, request positively, would necessitate the death of his daughter. And I would say malarkey. It's a biblical term. Memorize it. Memorize it. Malarkey. Here's what's happening. Uh, this does not prove that God is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. What this shows you is that every hero in scripture is an anti-hero. Every hero is broken. Every hero is flawed, fundamentally flawed. And Jephthah, for being a judge over Israel, was not the shining star of the bunch. And in fact, Judges, the book of Judges ends with what? What is the last, the last line of Judges? In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So scripture comments on this occasion and doesn't say God wanted this to happen. God endorsed this. Scripture says everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not God's eyes. Therefore, in this particular occasion, this is not God condoning it. This is God calling it out. Humanity is wicked. Even the best among them in that day were clearly flawed people. We could go on but I don't want to steal all your thunder. You guys have a lot of work to do now. I'm going to let you pick several of those to go through. Uh, and I have just a few more here, but we don't have time for that. I'm not even at point two yet. Thanks. All right, here we go. Oh man, there's some stuff I want to cover too. All right. You with me? 
You guys need to get up and stretch? No, you good? Okay. Second <laughs> Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That's what we're talking about. It came from God. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what I was saying in the last point. God is working on people, moving people. Can you trust the Bible? Yes, because the Bible is ultimately authored by God. This corresponds to the last point, but it's different. The Bible is authored by God. How do you know that? How do you know that? Well, we have a very firm way of figuring this out. We started the series with a song by John Lennon called Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. Remember that song? Uh, no religion, no God or whatever else. Uh, imagine all of us being humanists and doing whatever we want. That was his song, something like that. John Lennon died in a very peculiar way. Some of you might know this. Uh, outside of his apartment, he signed an autograph for, for one of his biggest, most rabid fans. His name was David Mark Chapman. David Mark Chapman approaches him and says, please sign this, and he does. John Lennon signs this album for Mark Chapman. Who knows what he was thinking, but David Mark Chapman came back and murdered John Lennon. That autograph, the last autograph that he gave, suddenly became much more valuable. In fact, that autograph sold at auction at the most recent occasion for $1.8 million because of the autograph. It was the last thing John Lennon signed before he died. Speaking of expensive autographs, if you want Abraham Lincoln's autograph, that's going to cost you $3.7 million. If you want George Washington's autograph, $9.8 million or you could donate to Compass 2020. <laughs> you pick. <laughs> God doesn't have an autograph, strictly speaking, but he does have a signature that belongs to him. When he signs this, you know that this is from God. What is that signature? Prophecy. In fact, if you're doing DBR, you read this a few days ago, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Who else can do that but God alone? I declare the end from the beginning. I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you how the, the story unfolds and ends from the beginning of the story. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, you can't stop me. I am God, there's none like me. I'll tell you how it all works from the very beginning so that you know I'm behind this. I wanna give you three strong evidences that you can work with. Now, some of these are really simple and I apologize if I offend your intelligence, but I wanna give you some places to hang your hat on so that when you're talking to your friends, you have three easy places to go to to showcase the prophecy, which is God's signature, his imprimatur, as Pastor Mike likes to say, that gives us confidence that God is in fact working through the Bible itself. He's the author. He's the, the, the one who inspires it. We look at Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus' birth in Isaiah 7, 14. And remember last week, we talked about the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that none of this was tampered with prior to the, to 20, the 19th or 20th century. Look at Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hmm, where have I heard that? How about Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21? An heir to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How about this one? We have Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus' birth. We also have Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus' life and death. This is the famous section that we just read in DBR, if you're following along. Let me just pop three different areas in this, in this section. You're going to read this tonight. But here's three quick areas. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And of course, when we read this, we understand that this is a clear, uh, a clear foreshadowing and a foretelling of the way that Jesus would die. He would be crucified, dividing his garments from among them and casting lots. Which, by the way, if you cross-reference Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, you find it exactly that what was happening as they were casting lots for his clothing was predicted in the Psalms. Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By the way, remember when Jesus did that in Matthew 26? Where his pilots, uh, uh, where the high priest is asking him, who are you? What are you doing? And Jesus is there silent before his accusers. 
Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Pilate affirms this. I find no guilt in him, and yet the Jews demand his death. How did they demand his death? Well, of course, through crucifixion. And they crucified him with between two robbers. But was he left on the cross? Absolutely not. They took him down, but it wasn't his disciples who took him down. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. This guy's rich money. He's big money over here, which he had cut in the rock. Isaiah 52 and 53 gives us a lot of evidence about the life of Jesus, how he would live and how he would die. And lastly, Jesus prophesies about his death and resurrection. I'm looking at the New Testament now. This is Jesus' words to his own disciples. And I'm looking specifically at John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus answers him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, my body will not decay in the tomb because you will preserve me, you will protect me, and you will raise me up again. Three quick and easy references to prophecy in the scriptures. Now, I need to offer you, again, a word of caution and an off, uh, a sense of nuance as we approach this. Christians can sometimes, again, oversimplify and overstate the case about how we understand prophecy to work. So I need you to see, I made a graphic for you. But at first, let me give you an illustration. One of my favorite shows, I love to hate it, is the Nailed It show. They give you a recipe, right? They say, here, go make this recipe. And they actually give you a model. Like, here's what it looks like. But then here's the recipe. Here's how to make fluffy bunny pancakes. And then they give you the ingredients, and they tell you how to do that. And the results, of course, as you know, are mixed, right? The, the first attempt, or maybe one, one of the guys ends up doing a decent job, but you have this pitif pitiful excuse for an attempt, and then someone ends up doing like, oh, here's the way it's supposed to look, you know? This is the, the way it's supposed to work. Prophecy's a little bit like that. Or, uh, let, me, well, let me show you. On the left-hand side of the screen, you have the nailed it, right? You have the recipe, the attempts, and you have the expert attempt, the one who does a great job putting it all together. On the right, biblical prophecy. You have the initial prophecy, but then there are times when you have multiple fulfillments of the same prophecy. And then you have finally the perfect fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. However, when you look at prophecy, you must understand that there are types and shadows and foreshadows that are, like, you look at it and you're like, well, this isn't exactly pointing to Jesus. But if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew does some of this. He'll take a reference, uh, like, out of Egypt I called my son. And he'll say, see, that's talking about Jesus. Well, if you read the context, it's like, well, it doesn't seem like it's talking about Jesus. But what Matthew and what the prophetic authors do is give you a sense of uh, shadowy figures that point forward to the future perfect fulfillment in Christ. I need you to understand that because... Uh, if you're an astute reader of scripture, you will have, sometimes you struggle with that and say, that doesn't look like it's talking about Jesus specifically. Well, I'm telling you that it does. And one of the ways that we know that it does is because scripture gives us validation through the, 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 the writers, first and foremost, but also in the old covenant. You have men who are writing in ways and knowing that they're talking about things in the future that they won't ever see. And if we had time, I could prove that to you a little more, but I just need you to know as it's nuanced, it's nuanced, and you need to treat this with respect like the rest of scripture you really want to get into understanding how prophecy functions, start studying this. Don't take this for granted. I know for some of you, you drop gospel bombs, you're talking about Isaiah 7:14, like, bah, Micah 5:2, bah. But you got to treat it skillfully. Remember, you're a wannaverse, okay? You want to be a worker who's not ashamed. It takes skill, it takes carefulness. Biblical prophecy is like the nailed it TV show. If you remember anything tonight, there it is. Skip that. Let's go to this. 2 Peter 1.21. Let me wrap this up for you. Uh, oof, this is a, ooh, this is a section here. <sighs> for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we talked about this, this text already, but let me tell you now how the Bible was actually preserved. You can trust the Bible because if God authored it, if God inspired it, that means God's going to protect it. God's going to make sure that his word gets to us and we can be confident that the Bible we have on our phones tonight or in our hands, if we have a physical Bible, is 
significantly, like supremely accurate to the original documents. How do we know that? Let me show you. But first, let me introduce you to a friend of mine. His name is Stan. He's a T-Rex. He was found in 1987 in South Dakota. He is one of the most complete T-Rex skeletons ever found. The most amazing thing about Stan is that he was actually put up for auction to a private seller recently, like a couple days ago, Stan. In fact, the museum expected, or not the museum, it was Christie's um, in New York. He stands 13 feet tall, 40 feet long from head to tail, 188 bones total, and they expected to get six to $8 million for him. What's important about him is this. Take a look. Researchers have theorized that punctures in Stan's skull and fused neck vertebrae demonstrate that this tyrannosaur was a warrior, one likely to have survived attacks from his own species and also estimate that the dinosaur would have weighed nearly eight tons when it was alive, more than twice the weight of the modern African elephant. I bring this up because one of the things that we as a culture do is we, we embrace Darwinian evolution, which if you're going to embrace Darwinian evolution, you believe that this dinosaur is hundreds of millions of years old. Okay? Remember that. Hundreds of millions of years old. And yet, what this news article is telling you is like everything about the guy. Like he likes long walks on the beach. He had Nikes. They were Air Jordan 1s. I mean, he, everything about the dinosaur. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but they're giving you details about him. That's like, well, why do you struggle so much with the Bible when you're talking about a million-year-old fossil here, which is so much older and harder to really understand than what we have in the, the, the manuscripts of the scriptures. In fact, by the way, just a real quick note here, this actually went for $31 million. Someone personally bought Stan. Good riddance, Stan. Okay, remember the Bible. We talked about all this before. Let me walk you through quickly. Please stay with me. I'm almost done, I promise. I'm gonna finish this, so help me God. How God preserved our Bible. Here's what you gotta know, okay? Quick and dirty tips. Memorize this, absorb it, here it comes. First and foremost, the Bible was hand copied. Is anyone surprised by that? No, we should not be. The Bible was handwritten, it was hand copied. And by the way, the Bible was hand copied thousands upon thousands of times. Why? Well, because you're, they're starting a new thing here. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant and suddenly people are getting saved all over, all over the world, at least the world at that point in time. And so in order for everyone to have the writings of the authorized apostles, people would have these manuscripts and they say, well, here, copy mine. Take a copy of mine, take it back to your church, back in Rome. And now all of us have the books that we're, we're, we're sharing. So hand copied, um, and it was done thousands of times, which, by the way, means that we're going to have a result of thousands of variants. Don't let this scare you. Thousands of variants, which means for all the manuscripts that we have, partial and a few complete copies of what the Bible was at various stages, no two copies are exactly alike. No two copies are exactly alike. You might have Jesus, the Son of God, in one copy, and you might have Christ, the Son of God, in another copy. And still in a third copy, you might have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in another copy, you might have uh, Christ spelled in a colloquial way. It might be spelled in a way that is unique to that, that area. And so now you have another copy. When you have multiple copies of the same text, um, and they don't agree, we call those disagreements variants. Um, and so the answer, how do you figure this out? The answer is a field of study called textual criticism. Here forth, referred to as TC. Bart Ehrman, a bona fide textual critic, wrote this about the copies. He says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later much later. Bart Ehrman was an evangelical Christian, a guy who studied the manuscripts and he ran away from his faith saying, I could no longer believe in it. How did God preserve our Bible then? First and foremost, what you got to understand, guys, is that textual criticism scrutinizes the manuscript evidence and reconstructs the original. Much in the same way like I just gave you those four examples, right? Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Christ, the Son of God, uh, Christ with the variant spelling. You're going to look at all of those, and you're going to look at the age of them. You're going to look at the, uh, the, the history behind them and determine, okay, which is the most likely given the facts about the scenario. Textual criticism scrutinizes manuscript evidence. 
Now, here's where Christians, I don't want you to get nervous about this. This is where we have something uh, called an embarrassment of riches. You might have difficulty in your mind imagining how we could put together the accurate word of Scripture based on those variants, but it's actually not as difficult as it might seem, especially when we have thousands uh, let's just say, I mean, the number might be too high. It might be closer to about 5,600. 5,600 5, manuscripts from different families and traditions that give us greater confidence that we can see where, uh, where the evidence kind of diverges. You have families of manuscripts that tell us, oh, okay, I see how this, this family of manuscripts, the, the Byzantine family, they're a little more... Uh, freewheeling about the ways that they approach the text. Where in this particular manuscript tradition, these guys are much closer to the original. How do we know that? Well, because their lineage is older. They have an older lineage. They have greater connection to the past. 4,000, excuse 5,800, give or take. If you want to look this up for yourself, Institute for New Testament Textual Research is the, is the, the organization that does this. Um, it helps if you know how to read and speak German because that's what most of the website is in. Now think about this for a second. I don't want to scare you, but think about this. If you have 4,000, uh, 5,800 Greek manuscripts, by the way, there's a lot more than that. Uh, if we counted Greek uh, and every other ancient language of manuscripts that we have, we would have 20, ten, tens of thousands of manuscripts, tens of thousands, old manuscripts that all say the same thing. So again, this is why I go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, why that was so important. Okay, variants. How many variants are there in the Bible? about 400,000 or more, about 400,000 or more. But again, you have to remember, as we talk about this, the, the variants are the kind of variants that are typically, most of them, spelling variants, colloquial variants. In fact, let me, just, let me just show you. I'll get to that in a second, the variants. When we compare our classical uh, handling, when we, have, uh, the, when we look at the, the amount of literature that we have to look back on, if you can see by this graphic, it's not a very good graphic. I'm sorry, I stole it from... Uh, Josh and Sean McDowell's book. But the average classical writer has about four feet worth of manuscripts. So let's just say it like this much from the pulpit, right? About this much. But if you look at the Bible, miles, miles of manuscript evidence and still so many that we have not yet even cataloged or scrutinized because there's so many manuscripts, there's so many resources that we don't have the kind of manpower to go through them, to scrutinize them and to study them closely. Thanks God, thank God, though, that there's a lot of people that do do this. And so what we found as the years progress, as we continue in the, in the year of our Lord, 2020, the longer history goes, the more manuscripts we find. And what do you think that does for us? We find more manuscripts. What do you think that allows us to do? To cross-check our Bible, to verify, do we have the right wording? Does this manuscript verify what we've come to, to understand so far? And the beauty about this is that as the, as the ages go on, the more accurate our Bible becomes because we're looking at ancient manuscripts and we're verifying. We're, we're learning more all the time. We're learning more and more that the Bible has been preserved, which is really what I want to get to here. Let me think about the Bible. There's four different categories of, of variants that I want you to see, and we'll, we'll finish on this. I promise I'm almost done. There are four different categories. Not viable, not meaningful. That is, it's something that's not even workable in the text and it's not going to have any meaningful change in the scriptures. Some are viable. There's enough manuscript evidence to support that it might be the original reading, but it doesn't actually have any effect on the meaning of the scripture. There are some that are meaningful, but not viable. They have an effect on the scripture, significant meaning, but they're not actually sufficient evidence to prove that it's viable. And then there are those that you and I might care about that are both meaningful and viable. These first two can be put together. And according to the evidence, 70% of the variants fall into this category here. Neither viable nor meaningful or viable but not meaningful. The next small percentage belongs to meaningful but not viable. Let's get to the one that everyone's thinking about here. I don't have a percent for that. This last category, meaningful and viable, is the one that makes the most difference to you. And, and there's maybe two places where I could point you to that you would know that there's some question. Mark 16, 9 through 20, and John 7, 53 through 8, 11. If you go in your Bible, it's going to say, the oldest manuscripts do not support the reading or the, just do not support this section. Mark 16, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Those are two examples of texts that are both meaningful and viable. 
In other words, when we look at the manuscripts, it is pretty clear that those two sections of scripture are not original to the, the, the writers of the Bible. And they're meaningful. They both have an impact on how we might understand some things. But here's the ultimate conclusion. We need to point out that whether either of these passages are authentic or not, no fundamental truth is gained or lost by them. To be sure, the textual decision will affect how one views these Gospels as a whole, but it does not affect any cardinal doctrine. That comes from Dan Wallace, one of the greatest textual critics of our time. Textual criticism shows us that the Bible actually is highly accurate. It's a highly accurate representation of the original autographs. You'll have to take my word for it, but you don't have to. Not ultimately. You can do the research yourself. You can look into textual criticism and find for yourself whether or not the Bible has been historically preserved accurately, and you will find, as I have been studying this week for you guys, I am so much more inspired and confident in what we have in our hands or in our iPads or our phones. Furthermore, Textual criticism shows us that our Bibles are more accurate as time goes on. Again, as we find more manuscripts, we can cross-check and verify, has, has, the, has anything changed? And in the last 200 years, not a lot has changed. Why? Because we have a very accurately preserved tradition of the text. Textual criticism shows us that God has preserved our Bible. You can be confident in it. How do we have confidence in the Bible? Well, we look at at least four things, and there's more that we could talk about, but these are the four we chose. We'll look at the history. We'll look at the power that the Scripture has on us to change us, to change people's lives, even to this day. We'll look at prophecy, the fact that Scripture makes prophecies and fulfills prophecies multiple times over on some occasions. And finally, we look at the preservation that God has taken uh, with His Scriptures. He takes His Bible, He keeps it for us. It's still intact. It's accurate. It is the most accurate book in antiquity. Without a doubt, no one is even close to us in terms of the manuscript tradition and the amount of manuscripts that we have. Scripture blows everyone else out of the water. Can you trust your Bible? In my humble opinion, no duh. But of course tonight is about you. If the Bible really is the Word of God, we should study it, we should know it, we should love it, we should trust it, we should live our lives according to that. So tonight I want you to work together on determining where you are with that. Do you trust the Bible? Uh, if you're a skeptic, what of everything that we've said so far would you disagree with and, and why? If you're a Christian, I would encourage you to work really hard to put some of these, uh, these tools to memory because you're going to need them. You're going to use them. I promise you that. You're going to talk to somebody soon where they're going to ask you, why do you believe in the Bible? It's so corrupted. No one likes it anyway. It's homophobic. It's xenophobic. It's, you know, whatever phobic it is. There's all those things. The Bible's that. Why do you trust that Bible? And you need to have a good answer for that. I'm going to pray for us so I can get you guys your small Let's do that now before I keep talking.